0: Welcome to the Going Beyond podcast. I'm Randy Zinn. I'm an entrepreneur, wellness expert, author, and the founder of the Going Beyond movement. I'm constantly exploring how individuals can make the most impact on a daily basis. And here's what I've learned. Your life is part of the change we want to see in the world. Your life is the movement. The work you do is that drop that causes that ripple effect of positivity. Let today's episode be part of your daily contribution toward change, the investment you make in yourself. Let it be the fuel you need to go beyond. If you're enjoying the Going Beyond Podcast, consider subscribing so you never miss an episode. When you subscribe, our weekly episode arrives right onto your device on whichever platform you have subscribed from. We also appreciate five-star ratings and reviews. Thanks so much for your support, friends. We're so glad you're hanging with us. Hi, everybody. Welcome to today's show. I'm so happy that you're spending time with me. This is my happy place where I feel like I get to give myself the gift of inspiring soul-nurturing conversations, and even better, I get to meet amazing women who nine times out of 10 become a new friend. And so today's conversation is with someone who I've really yet to get to know, but I'm really excited to know. And I have a strong sense that what she has created is going to be a really, really special opportunity for us to learn about how to move toward our passions, our callings, and to make real impact on the world and where it's needed. I'm joined today by Sarah Simons. She is the founder and director of Her Future Coalition, an international charity that has helped thousands of girls rise out of poverty and exploitation to become free and independent Her future coalition has been selected for a collaboration with Michelle Obama's Girls Opportunity Alliance, a campaign to promote and support education for the most vulnerable girls around the world. Over the years, the, Her Future Coalition has served tens of thousands of survivors in India, Nepal, Cambodia, and Thailand. Most exciting to Sarah is the fact that survivors who joined the program only a few years ago are now managing the programs, working as trainers and mentors to newly rescued girls. She could not imagine any future at all when they were living in brothels and now their dreams are limitless. And that is truly what we would hope for any girl in the world. So um, Sarah is also, as I've just learned in our brief introduction to one another, a mother. I never avoid that part of the conversation of two college-age young people, her son and her daughter, and she lives in Florida. So I'm really excited to get to know her. So welcome to the show, Sarah.
1: Thank you, Randy. I'm so excited to be here.
0: I would just like to say that we spend a lot of time on this show talking about Healing, about resilience, and about the things that we learn through not only the things that we've personally been through, but also through the people that we somehow serve. Like it's everyone assumes that if you create something, you're giving something. But I think we all know that you receive so much in return. And I'm really excited to know more about you and about what brought you to stepping so full force into your commitment to girls around the world, far away from here, and to drastically improving their lives. It's a massive step. And I really love to understand more about where you've come from and how and why you've made this your mission.
1: Wow, there's so much in what you just said. I can't wait to dig into all of it. I guess I'll start at the beginning. How I got involved in it was... (laughs) <laughs> extremely unexpectedly, and a little reluctantly, perhaps, initially, because I was on a completely different path. My kids were really little, and I lived in Cape Cod. My husband was an investment banker, and I had a job as a composer and performer of music for film and TV. In fact, mostly TV and mostly soap operas, and almost always the love and death scenes of soap operas, because that's what my music was kind of all about. I have Very- to tell you
0: Tell you, Sarah, I did not expect you to say any of that. Because I'm, <laughs> I'm like, this is the beauty of life. Like you can be writing music for soap operas and somehow end up doing what you're doing now. So, just a note to listeners: like your life can take many paths.
1: <laughs> it really can, and. I seriously thought, Randy, I was like, I am on this path. Like, I am pursuing my music. It was already my second, you know, chapter because I had done music. I was in a band and toured around the country and had a record deal and did that for, like, most of my 20s and, into like, just in my early 30s. And then I, you know, was tired of being, you know, in a bar at 3 a.m. and being the oldest person there. So I was like, you know, let's have a new chapter. And I wanted to have a family and, you know, wasn't suitable with the lifestyle I had. So then I you know, got into songwriting, which was fantastic. It was like a way to use the same passion and, and talents and, and also be able to have the family life that I was ready for at that point. So when that, I got that going, I was like, this is great. I am on this path. You know, these kids are tiny. I'm like consumed with all this stuff. And, you know, we're doing great, like moving forward. (laughs) And, you know, very like kind of, I'm always very monofocused. So I really wasn't expecting this next complete transformation into something completely different. It just was not, you know, in my playbook at all. But I think part of it, what came out of it was my mother had died and she was pretty young. She was 60, not even 60. And she died very, very quickly of cancer, like just in three or four months. And she had come back from England. She'd been living in England where we're all originally from. And she'd come back to help me with when my daughter was born. And so she we'd been like extremely close and, you know, every day together with the kids and it was magical. It was wonderful. And, you know, lasted just a couple of years and then cancer and, and very suddenly, and for me, extremely traumatically died. And I was, extremely grief stricken and also very overwhelmed now with these two little kids and deeply in my grief. And my kids were two and one when that happened. So I think the fact that this very tragic event had happened for me, kind of, you know, there's this, there's this Jewish saying that when your heart breaks, the words of God can fall in. You know that what I'm talking about, right? It's like,
0: my God, sitting here having like a moment. So, listeners, just so you know, Sarah and I are looking at each other on video. So, she saw my face. So, just to say, I also lost my dad very unexpectedly in an accident 15 years ago when he was, when I was 25. So, immediately I'm resonating with one part of your story, which is that death and loss and trauma is transformational and will totally take you in another track of your life. So I'm feeling you there very deeply. And then the other part is when you just made reference to that quote, that was a quote that I lived by and I read it in a book that my rabbi gave me that was all about a Jewish approach to healing and grief. And the quote, the way I always heard it or read it was when your heart is broken, God floods in but it's the same thing that you're saying. So that's amazing. We're already besties and it's happening. Go ahead. What was the book? I don't remember. Jeez. It was about grief and loss, but it was from a Jewish, you know, perspective, perspective.
1: And there's also this this Rumi poem and and it's the wound is where the light comes in and really you know kind of saying the same thing. So for me, I really have been it was because of that life changing event that I think I was open to this life changing, you know, or transformational journey. And all these kind of crazy, miraculous things actually happened. Do you want to hear them?
0: Of course, I want to hear about the crazy, miraculous things that happened. <laughs>
1: I don't usually share them, it just feels like the right thing to do. So, going for it.
0: What happens here on this show, Sarah? Like crazy, miraculous things where guests say, I don't usually talk about this. Perfect.
1: Okay. okay. We're all in all of us together, your listeners and us, and we're going to So what actually happened was it was my mother's birthday, just a few months after she passed away. And you know what that's like that first birthday, that first holiday. And so I thankfully had a babysitter because I would have been a crap mom and I didn't know what to do with myself. So it was like typical spring day in New England, like sheet rain and like super gray. And it was like, okay, perfect. This matches my very dark mood. And so I was just driving around Cape Cod and periodically I would just have to stop in some parking lot and cry. And I was really just super down and really feeling like I wasn't making, you know, any progress in recovering from my grief or moving through my stages in any way. So finally I stopped at this one, in this one parking lot and I was, you know, I had been in the habit of talking to my mom every day after she died and before and talking to God every day. But that day I was just feeling like so despairing and I did, like sort of mad at them and not wanting to talk to them and feeling kind of hopeless about it. So I decided to talk to another person who had died, which was a much older grief and was a young man that I had worked with in a program for homeless youth that I worked at in New York City some years before, and he had been murdered at age 17. His name was Philip. So I was like, Philip, you know, you've been up there longer, like put in a word for me because this woman is just like going down. I'm just really not seeming to be able to work through this. And just talking to him immediately felt some relief and, you know, I went and got a donut and that was all kind of a miracle in itself. Just feeling it's going to be okay. You know, just feeling that peace. But then when I got home, remember answering machines? I had one. (laughs) This was like 18, 19 years ago. And on my answering machine was a message from my agent that she had just gotten one of my songs into a feature film. And it was a really big deal because I mostly just did soaps. And the song was called Street of Dreams, Calle de Sueños. And it was a song I wrote for Philip when he died. Wow! Right? I was like, oh my gosh. My husband doesn't believe in any like spiritual stuff or like anything, you know, outside of the natural scientific way of life. So he was like, even I got to say, because I had told him about, you know, the prayer and the crying and all that. And he was like, wow, okay. That happened. That's something. So that should have been the end of it. It really felt like it turned a corner of my grief. It was a wonderful thing. And then a few months later, that film was chosen for the Tribeca Film Festival in New York city. And so a year later I went down to Tribeca to see this film and, my song in the film which was actually being sung by emmy rosam in the title credits very exciting and i was like this is it you know life is going to change and my musical career is about to go up to the next level and in fact it was the absolute end of my musical career because while i was there i had a ticket to see any other film at tribeca but a super limited time frame and the only available film was the day my god died which is a film about trafficking of very young girls from Nepal to india for sexual exploitation. And when I say I was reluctant about this path, I will tell you very truthfully, I didn't want to go to that film. I felt very resistant. You know, I was like, I'm, I'm grieving. I'm still, you know, working through stuff. My kids are super little. I, you know, when, what will I be able to do? Why am I going to go see this super sad, awful film about, you know, sexual exploitation of little ones? And anyway, I went because it was the only available film in my time slot. And so thankful I went because it just burst open my heart again. And... The light and love flowed in for these girls. And I said, you know, I am going to dedicate the rest of my life to doing something for them. And I think if it had been a different film, if it had been like most documentaries, you know, they're so depressing. And because, you know, they just share the really hard things that are going on in the world. It's so important shedding light on them. But this one was different. It did definitely share the tragedy of, you know, 11, 12, 13 old girls being trafficked and losing their dreams in their lives in many cases, um, never going home. But it also showed the hope and resilience and courage of these girls and some of the people helping them. And some of these girls, like this woman, Anita, she had been trafficked at about age 12 after her father died and, you know, was in brothel in Mumbai for many years, contracted HIV. But she went back, to was eventually rescued and sent back to Nepal. And she was using the time she had left to work at the border and prevent trafficking from happening to others because of the insight and intuition she gained having had that happen to herself. So that's the kind of person that was featured in this film. And I later actually got to meet her. She did eventually pass away from AIDS, but before that I got to meet her and, and she was as amazing as it seemed in the film. And she was you know, one of the touchstones and there were some others. Uh, girls who were going back into the brothels and rescuing others and bringing rescue teams because they knew what to look for. You know, they knew the way that girls would be hidden and they knew the way that girls would be brainwashed. So they knew how to talk to peers and girls and help them to understand, you know, this is real. You know, this is not, you're not being trafficked again. You can trust these people. I've been there. And it was a very, it was and is a very powerful part of the story. So anyway, seeing all that, I was like, the love and light flowed into my heart. For them. And I just said, I'm going to do this. And, you know, it's not going to be obvious how, because I write soap operas and I live in Cape Cod and I have preschoolers, you know what? I've never run an international charity or any charity, you know, I've never been to India or Nepal. What do I have to offer here? And I was like, we'll figure it out.
0: That was exactly like the moment that I wanted to like pause at for a second, which is everything you just said, like your heart burst open You suddenly feel completely called to this mission, to these girls, and you have like really minus all the love in the world to share and obviously the smarts, but you don't technically have any of the know-how to do this thing. So... I'm sure a lot of people can relate to that moment because we all have those moments where we feel something, but we don't have any idea what to do with it. So in like long and short, what did you do? So long and short,
1: I asked people who were already doing it what they needed. And I've really tried and I still try to be humble and know what you don't know, you know, and coming into it from the outside, I certainly didn't want to have this you know white savior approach or any kind of savior like not going to be coming in here with solutions. I'm going to be coming in here with questions and then supporting what's working and building on what's already happening in the field. And that's you know really remained my ethos. So I just the first year I volunteered for another organization called Mighty Nepal that had a, a chapter in Boston, and I learned and learned and asked and asked did a lot of research. And whenever anyone who was working in the field would talk to me, I would, you know, ask them, what was, what's working? Where do you need help? And after a year, the organization I was volunteering with invited me to come and visit their shelter in Kathmandu, another eye-opening, life-changing, transformative experience. And I went and I asked the people at that shelter and a couple other shelters I visited on that trip, you know, what can I do? What can I help you with? Whether it's, you know, fundraising which is obvious. You know, I thought that would be it. Or, you know, you need me to like, you know, take out the trash. I'll, I don't care. I just like what's working and where do you need help and support? And all of them said, we really need help and support around finding long-term economic alternatives for the older girls. And by older, I mean, rescued at 16 plus. And they, you know, may find it difficult, often found it difficult to go back and start kindergarten again if they hadn't had any kind of earlier education. First of all, there's a lot of trauma, you know, that they had to work through. Second of all, it's really hard to do. Your brain changes and it's just not everyone's thing. And third of all, they were at that point in their life where you're getting ready to move out on your own and you're, you know, you want to have, maybe you want to get married or you want to get your first apartment, get some hands some and they were ready to start establishing independent life and a lot of them were you know young adults 18 19 20 as well and so you know going back to kindergarten wasn't their thing and they had low literacy and a lot of trauma so it was about trying to find job opportunities for that population so that's where we started and we started very very simply which was just to take the handicraft products that girls were making at the different shelters and bringing them back to cape cod and selling them at house parties you remember when house parties had their little renaissance, you know, like early 2000s, mid 2000s, you know, like, or 2005, 2006. And we just happened to kind of hit that moment, which was great. And it turned out to be a great way to break down resistance because like me, most people aren't going to go, you know, they're going to be reluctant or fearful to go see a documentary about such a difficult topic, but Hey, it's a house party. There's going to be wine. There's going to be brownies. There's going to be, you know, cheese. Like most women will come, you know, and then we're going to come together. There's going to be these products made by the survivors and we're going to have a chance to meet, you know, Sarah and learn a little bit about her journey. So we kept it, you know, I guess very accessible in that way and it really worked and just kind of kept growing. We kept asking, you know, so over time we realized that the handicrafts weren't actually enough of an income to really transform a survivor's life and give her the, to be able to move out of the shelter and to be able to live independently and get out of poverty. And what they wanted to do, which was pull their mom or their sister out and they want, you know, they need to have a higher income. So then we realized that we needed to train in other kinds of jobs that could have a higher income. So we've done different things over the years, but one of them was goldsmithing and we were able to, we've trained about 75 women in that. And that actually provides them a very good income that allows them to you know, live independently, support others, and become taking a leadership role in the family and community. And we just continue to explore all different kinds of professional opportunities, you know, from baking to computer programming, photography, anything in between that, you know, women and girls want to do um, professionally. Building on that, we realized, you know, we do have this large population of younger survivors and also even some of the older teens who do want to go the formal education route. So we started our education program, which has actually been one of our largest programs, and we provide education and a full circle of services that support that, you know, because you can't be successful in education if you're living on the pavement in a red light area and you don't have breakfast, you know. So we're really addressing the need for shelter, the mental health needs, teaching people, you know, to be able to understand their legal and human rights around this, really addressing trauma on a multitude of different levels. While it's providing basics like food, you know, nutritious food and a safe place to study, like we have these resource centers in the red light areas, and this is for kids whose moms are still in prostitution. Their moms were probably trafficked. They would be trafficked too. They have a ninety percent chance of being trafficked if they're growing up there. And we built these centers where they can come from early in the morning to quite late at night and be able to have a safe place to study and then receive all these services from tutoring, you know, financial literacy, all of it that allows them to be successful in life, to remain safe, to protect themselves. We've got about 350 kids in that program. Just over the years, we kept asking and, you know, we asked local partners and organizations in the field, but we also, as the girls grew older and our relationships with them, deepened, asked them, you know, what do you need? What do you want? And sometimes the answer was surprising, Um, but we always tried to adapt and respond to that. And that's brought us to where we are today.
0: Wow. So I imagine you're talking about kind of like a growing web of needs and resources over time as you started to understand what the needs really were. So I imagine that you're also creating relationships with other groups, other people on the ground, as well as probably here in the States, like where all these resources can come together to create what's needed. It's not, I am imagining that it can't just be like you and what you've created. Like you've now kind of created a web of resource.
1: hundred percent. I'm obsessed about collaboration. And I actually think whether it's trafficking or any other, you know, major serious social problem, you will not, no one person's going to fix it. No one organization's going to fix it. Even if it's a big giant organization, but certainly not, you know, smaller grassroots ones. Everyone has, there's different needs and people have to come together to, you know, address them. And for us, we've done almost everything, really everything in close partnership with local organizations like that red light program, you know, with a group that worked in that community for a while and had developed, you know, relationships with the parents, you know, another program is in the slum community and there's local partners working in all those areas. You know we don't conduct rescues, we work with groups that conduct the rescues and we start working with survivors at the point of rescue. Other people work on their legal cases and helping them to, you know, get their legal rights taken care of or repatriation. So there's all these different kind of ways of approaching it. And I guess that's what gives me hope, you know, for this issue and other issues that people want to get involved in. That, you know, there are many, many approaches needed. So whatever you've got to bring to the table, you know, you could find a place where that's the need and where you're passion and gifts meet the world's need, there's going to be a different place. And I've seen approaches where at first I was like, Hmm, that's, you know, I felt, I felt skeptical and they end up working for some girls. So let's, you know, I now know I don't compare myself like, Oh, those people are better than me. They're doing better. You know, that's such a waste of time. Or there's going to be girls who are needs are met by our approach and by other people's in their approaches. Like we need it all.
0: Right. Well, we're all like human beings and we all vary in what works for us and, you know, what needs are satisfied. I'm curious, Sarah, because, you know, we're obviously spending so much time right now looking at, you know, here in the States, we're looking at COVID. Well, around the world, we're looking at COVID. We're looking at the election, the politics, all of these issues. But, you know, we're talking about the lives of girls on the other side of the world why does this matter so much? Like, why should we be paying attention to this? Why should we be thinking about supporting the betterment of these lives?
1: I think that we always have to pay attention to the most vulnerable among us. You know, and there's a saying like, if one man is enslaved, then no one is free. And I feel like, you know, the most vulnerable people in our world right now are girls. And I don't think we can progress as a society as half a people. And I think we have to address all the people, the women and the men, the, you know, the people of color and the European people, like we have to move forward together as an entire society, or we can't, I feel like we're going to stay stuck and we can't move forward at all. So I think it really does, it serves us all when we see ourselves as a global community and when we come together to move forward. COVID has, it's been hard on everyone, of course, like challenges right around my neighborhood in my town. But for people who are already vulnerable, it's been devastating. You know, I think for the girls that live in shelters, they've been okay because the shelters, you know, had some food stockpiled, had some money in the bank. But for girls who live with their parents in the slums and red light areas, you know, people didn't even have a can of food or a bag of rice when this started. Lockdown was announced very suddenly. People didn't have any food, like never mind worrying about toilet paper or, you know, it was like zero food. And there was an extreme risk of starvation. And immediately, you know, parents started sending girls out to beg. I mean, they had no choice. They were just in desperate situations. So we are very thankful that our donors and community really rallied. And we were able to provide quite a bit of emergency relief to prevent, you know, that from continuing and prevent anyone from starving or being trafficked. So, so thankful for that. But we're not a relief organization. It's not, you know, normally we do. We're into this long-term like deep approach. So I think, but the need was, and is alarming, you know, families that were living on maybe $3 a day for the whole family of six. And now it's a dollar. Like imagine, you were know, are already so marginal and then what little you have is gone. And then there's this huge, it was terrible. There's this big typhoon that came through, or cyclone, sorry. And I think it's the same thing as a hurricane. I'm still trying to figure it out. But anyway, this big weather event came through and these kids were watching like they're two possessions floating away, you know, down the alley on top of COVID. So, you know, I do truly feel that if we don't act and continue to act, you know, and take a strong response to this, that we're going to lose, you know, some of the ground that we've gained both for, you know, us and for our girls and, and other organizations and for other very vulnerable people. So I think it's critical that we act on it, but, you know, for the world, but also for ourselves, like I don't think we're going to be well if we don't address wellness globally And I, you know, in terms of the election and COVID, there's some actions you can take and by all means do take them. But there's also a sense with some of these issues that we don't have a lot of control. And that's, you know, very scary and very hard for us to admit the standing fact that we don't control most of what goes on in the world and in life. So I feel like by taking things that we can control and taking action on them, it heals us and helps us move forward. So, you know, you can be on social media all day railing against, you know, things that Are distressing in the world, or you can, you know, go work for a candidate you believe in, or, you know, work at the local food bank or get involved in our organization. You can take steps that you can control. And that feels more empowering and more healing to me than living in a constant elevated state of, you know, distress and rage.
0: I love that. I can only imagine that by doing this work so full force, by going to these places and being you know, face-to-face with the reality, but most importantly, by establishing relationships with these young women over time, that you've experienced profound learning, growth, healing that have just become part of you. So I would love to understand and hear more about that.
1: I have. I mean, I feel like, you know, you said it at the beginning of this discussion when you dive in and walk alongside people in these hard situations, like you're going to get as much out of it as they are. It is so profoundly true. And for me, it has been extraordinary. You know, the joy that I've experienced and witnessed and been a part of is like nothing I ever could have imagined before doing this, because when people have been in such a very, 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 very hard and dark place, and then they come out of that, the joy that they experience is greater than the average joy. And I wrote a book about it called, This Is No Ordinary Joy, because it really is like kind of in balance to the hard and painfulness. The joy is also higher, you know, because you've maybe experienced the full scope of it. So I've loved that. And I have loved, Being able to be trusted by people, you know, even after all the betrayal that they have experienced, that they still are able to love, that they're still able to trust again, that when you do enter into their life and prove yourself as a, you know, trustworthy and caring person, that profound relationships, you know, can and do come out of that. One of my very most special, I mean, they're all so special, but someone that I'm especially proud of right now is Anjali. And Anjali is a Nepali young woman. She was trafficked at age 12 from a small village in Nepal into a brothel in Calcutta. And she's there for a couple of years and then rescued. And I met her very shortly after she was rescued. And we've been walking together ever since. She is a daughter to me in every sense of the word. And we've just written a book together and it's called Standing in the Way. It's coming out January 11th, Human Trafficking Awareness Day. And, you know, she, unlike many of our girls really don't want to publicly share their story. And, you know, there's a lot of stigma around it. And also they need to focus on moving forward and what's ahead for them and what's behind. Anjali a little different because she wants to go back to her village and open a school and a trafficking prevention program there. And in order to do that, she feels that, you know, she kind of needs to get it out there and be pretty open and honest and public about it so that, you know, she, she can raise money for the project, but also when she goes back into the village to take a strong stand, like this is who I am. This is what happened. And I am a survivor and I'm not going to let this happen the next generation. So through the, you know, months of quarantine, that was my project. And I'm so lucky, like it was so profound and it was so fun and it was so meaningful, you know, to be able to Walk, you know, find out all about like, every little thing about her life before this happened and her incredible perspective that she has today, the wisdom as healing for me, you know, as it was for her and, and hopefully for the people who read it.
0: Wow. How did you execute a book together? Because I'm imagining she lives on the other side of the world.
1: She lives in Kathmandu. She's in college right now in her third year studying education. We zoomed the heck out of it. I mean, we just zoomed like, and that was fun too. Like <laughs> I recorded them all because you know I transcribed them. So I interviewed her many, many times. And you can sort of see like my look deteriorating. (laughs) as COVID continued. My hair goes longer and (laughs) straggler. It's sweaty, you know, just like summer comes, but it was really fun. So we just, I interviewed her extensively. She didn't want to spend a lot of time talking about the time in the brothel. Understandably we had, but she had shared things over the years with me and I had those. And I also used, you know, other girls that I talked to and my own knowledge of the situation to kind of pull that section together. But it's mostly not about what happened there. It's mostly about the vulnerabilities that led to her being trafficked, the the circumstances, the root causes, and then the healing journey, what happened after and, you know, her going on to develop this beautiful dream. And so we also interviewed about eight people who were involved in rescuing her and involved in, you know, sheltering her and helping to return to her to return to Nepal. And so their stories are woven in as well. Because we wanted to show too that, like, you know, wherever you're hitting this from, you know, some of those people are Nepali, some are Indian, one's American. I'm, you know, American. So, like, just wherever you're coming to this from, that you can play a role in someone's life. There are many different ways, as I said before, to enter into this. And all these people did. And so they're the angels kind of, you know, weaving through this. And then, you know, the end is her, you know, getting married and having a little baby and buying the land. She bought the land this summer for the school. So, it's moving forward. It's happening. Wow. I love that. You know, I take more pride in that than in anything I've done because it's like just being able to like help one of these girls to accomplish her vision. It's incredible. And I get to do it every day in different ways. One of our girls, as you mentioned earlier, got to interview Malala and Michelle Obama for International Day of the Girl. And her dream is to be a photojournalist. She really wants to come to the United States to study. And I feel like, you know, getting that byline in Teen Vogue is, you know, a nice, step on her on her journey it's it was huge for her and it was huge for us and another one of our girls took the photographs and she got a photo credit in vogue for that so they do amazing things every day and for someone else it's simpler you know i just moved out of the shelter and i moved into my first apartment and you know we get to go over and see their apartment it looks just like anyone's first apartment you know what i mean (laughs) it stops on the floor and you know they're figuring it all out it's awesome
0: I think what you point out when you say that is like, it looks like anyone's apartment. It's like, we forget living the largely, not that trafficking does not happen in the US, it does, but we live such privileged lives. Most of us in ways that we can't even totally see that we forget that these young girls, like as you said before, we are one of them. They are one of us, like we could be them. And so, yeah, they are just like, Quote, regular girls, and they should be allowed to be. And they just happen to, thank God, be able to become extraordinary through this amazing support that, you know, you and these other organizations are able to give them. So I just, wow, I just applaud you. I'm curious, Sarah, like before we start to wrap it up, giving us maybe like three concise bits that you've woven into your life, your wellness, your self-care, your mindset that you have learned from these girls because they're so powerfully resilient. So I can only imagine how that must rub off on you in your daily practices and daily ways of processing your life in the world.
1: So it definitely has. It's like given me a whole new, yeah, spiritual practice or perspective. So it's hard to pick just three, but One of them is the biggest thing is making a conscious decision to leave the past behind. And obviously it doesn't mean you don't work through it. You don't, you know, process it. You don't feel your grief and loss that they obviously have a lot of, and you know, it needs to be periodically addressed, but they are not dropping anger there. And, you know, I've seen remarkable recoveries And I would say that like 95% of the girls go on to make like a really good recovery, you know, in their mental health and in their life and able to rebuild a good healthy life. If they're given, you know, these supports, the ones that don't, it is an inability to it's that you're still in the brothel in your mind and you're using yourself over and over and over again by reliving it. And it's for us who have had a much lesser levels of trauma, it's still really hard not to get stuck in past resentments, right? It's like, this is a journey, you know, and a process that I still struggle with. And like, oh, this happened. (laughs) You know what? This person, why did they like me? And, you know, kind of like, whatever this person did or said is nothing compared to me saying it to myself like 5,000 times over the next years, you know? So what I've really learned from them is like, make the decision to forgive, not for them, but for you, and make the decision to not hold on to a hot coal, which is you know holding on to. Her, not to ruminate. So Anjali says that when she starts kind of running, you know, maybe having imagery that's really disturbing that's running around her head, she like literally shakes her head, you know, her body, like shake it off, shake it off. You know, walk outside. She move into a different room. You know, get yourself out of that mindset. Don't spiral into it and make that conscious decision day after day. Look up, not down. Look forward, not back. You know, unless you're. If you're in a counseling session, you know, and you need to process it, if you're having a moment, you need to grieve it. Of course, do it. I'm not saying that, but don't drop anchor there. That is number one. And another one is what stands in the way becomes the way, and that is from Marcus Aurelius, and also is inspired the title of the book I wrote with Anjali. You know, standing in the way, the things that happen. Let's just say, in her case, these terrible things happen. We wish they wouldn't happen. We would wish they would not have happened to her or to anyone, but they did. And, you know, what can you take from that? Like, it doesn't mean, you know, everything happens for a reason. I don't believe that, but let's find a reason. Let's make it worth it. Let's, you know, take something that was horrible and turn it into something beautiful. And that's what she's doing with her project and what other girls are doing in each of their own individual ways. Like Maybe through being trafficked, some new opportunities came their way you know, for education and professional that they would to have, you know, and obviously it doesn't equal it or anything like that, but it's just, let's allow things that have happened. Let's find if there's something that we can take strength from and have that become our way forward. And finally, I use this a lot. Like, let's see what love can do. Let's not give into despair, you know, with COVID with our election, with trafficking, with hunger, with gender-based violence of all kinds. This is a situation I've seen when you shine a light on it, when you intervene, responds really positively and great change is possible. So I refuse to be hopeless. People are like, well, there are millions of girls. Okay, but let's knock them down. Let's knock it one by one here. Let's see what love can do in this situation, in this person's trauma, in this social trauma. And let's give it a minute and absolutely not give in to despair. Nothing and no one is beyond help.
0: Wow. Wow so so powerful thank you for that wisdom i think we can all benefit from it and i think we know deep down that this is not just ideas but this is truth so wow i'm so honored to have been able to listen to your learning and the work you're doing in the world before we go sarah please tell us how listeners can follow the organization Contribute, get involved, and um, anything else you want us to uh, be tuned into, whether it's the book or anything else.
1: Thank you for asking. Please engage with us on social media and it's Her Future Coalition or at Her Future Coalition or Her Future. You can find it. Our website is www.herfuturecoalition.org. You can find out a lot more information there. The book Standing in the Way is coming out in January on Amazon. And I would just invite you that if you felt, you know, touched by anything we talked about today and whether it's our organization and this issue or something else that you've been really called to do, do it, you know, step into it, dive in and the next step's going to be revealed for you just like it was for me and for all of us involved in this organization.
0: Thank you. You're truly a model of what it means to step in. So I'm honored. Thank you, Sarah, for sharing your story today with us. Thanks for deeply listening. You got it. And listeners, thank you for deeply listening. I do not take your time for granted. I value the time that you invest in yourself, which I hope is what this podcast provides you. If you enjoyed today's conversation, please share it. And as always, I always appreciate five-star ratings and perhaps even a little bit of commentary over on Apple iTunes as to why you love the podcast. If you happen to stumble upon this episode and you didn't subscribe yet, do so because then you'll never miss an episode. And one last thing is that if you are not a subscriber to my newsletter, you should be because you'll actually get bonus content, extra bits of conversation with my guests that are a little bit more personal and um, you'll get to know them more and have a few laughs, a little bit more insight. So if you haven't yet, head over to the website goingbeyondmovement.com and in your email and you'll start to get access to some of that fun extra content. So until next time, you guys take care of yourself and we'll see you whenever the next time is next week, I hope. Bye.